I have never been healthier. I'm living a life that I couldn't imagine I was going to be able to live. And why am I suddenly not interested in living it? Am I going to look at this fear or am I going to run from it? Am I going to push into what I am not comfortable with? Or am I going to pretend it's not there and distract myself? Having this illness at 20 was the visceral awareness that my life was finite. And I think the gift of mortality, it gave me license to take off the table a whole bunch of stuff that was not important to me. Like, why is it we need crisis to provoke these examinations? Welcome to the Rebel Souls podcast, where we flip the middle finger to the status quo. I'm your host, Shelley Paxton, lifelong rebel, liberator of souls, and author of Soulbatical, a corporate rebel's guide to finding your best life. Settle in as we dive deep with badass leaders who are rebelling for what matters most in life, business, and the world at large. I'm so happy you're here. Let's get this revolution started. This is a Soulfire production. Hello and welcome back, my fellow rebel souls. It's so good to be with you. And I cannot believe it's almost the end of 2021 of this year of awakening. I've been calling it. I really feel like this is the year that all of our insights and everything that shook us and and the realization of everything that matters most really started to come to that point of clarity. And we're all really figuring out what we want to make of 2022. This conversation with Jeremy Hunter is profoundly timed in my opinion. And I hope that you agree. Jeremy is, he's really considered a global authority on mindfulness. Although it's really funny, he kind of blows up this word mindfulness and I love it. We talk about how we really should be thinking about mindfulness, what he calls it. And at the end of the day, what he's become one of the foremost experts on is the inner game of life and leadership. He serves as the founding director of the Executive Mind Leadership Institute, as well as the Associate Professor of Practice at the Peter F. Drucker Graduate School of Management. And I think most of you know and recognize the name Peter F. Drucker. He's like the father of modern management. The quote that I love the most from Peter Drucker is, you cannot manage other people unless you manage yourself first. One of the most game-changing ideas that I've heard Jeremy talk about and that we cover in this conversation is that the quality of our attention is the quality of our life. We get to decide where we want to put our attention. We get to take our agency back. And we talk about what that looks like and some things that you can do for yourself and your team and to drive your cultures forward, whether you're in a company, whether you run your own company, or whether this pertains simply to your day-to-day life. And you guys, this is coming from a guy 
who at the age of 20 was given a terminal illness diagnosis. At the age of 20, had to come to grips with his mortality. And that's what led him on this entire journey of really, truly understanding how to come to terms with everything happening within him, his emotions, his anger, his rage, his frustration, his disappointment, all of it. And I'm talking to him three decades after that diagnosis and after a kidney transplant. So this guy knows what he's talking about. He's gone there and he's gone in and he's really, really tried to understand. And now he teaches at some of the best schools in the country, this idea of the inner game of leadership, what it means to lead more mindfully, to practice self-management and self-leadership. I feel like this starts to set the foundation for how all of us are going to rebel for our best lives in 2020 and become the best humans, the best souls, the best leaders possible. So please settle in, listen, and enjoy every minute of this juicy conversation with Jeremy Hunter. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation today because one, I just ate up everything you were saying on the Wisdom 2.0 last year. And I feel so honored to be able to have this conversation, Jeremy. So first of all, thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Shelly. Yeah. And it feels like right now is the time to be having this conversation as we're kind of unsteadily emerging from this global pandemic. And so many of us have been shaken in so many ways. And we're coming to terms with what matters most to us in our lives. The work that you're doing around mindfulness and how we want to show up as leaders and how we want to show up in our lives feels so crucial right now. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I've been, I've been busy as I've ever been. Uh, first I have to say that I've come to despise the word mindfulness. Oh, um, oh, let's dig into that. (laughs) Say more. (laughs) Uh, I think for a lot of people, it connotes something kind of quote unquote spiritual or, you know, West coast fluff or whatnot that has nothing to do with the complexity and difficulty of the challenges I face every day. Right. And, and maybe, maybe you're telling me I have to go meditate. Look, I don't, I didn't have time to get the groceries, let alone, you know, sit and do nothing. And so lately I've started to talk more about mindlessness and I find that people instantly understand what that means. Right. And because we have, we have all gone to the refrigerator, opened the door, looked in and asked ourselves, why did I come here again? Right. And so, or as my wife is want to do, find my um, keys hanging out the front door and send me a photo of it with the caption, you know, Mr. Mindfulness strikes again. But mind, so mindlessness, I think is something that we can kind of easily resonate with, you know, both in a silly small scale, but also in the big scale, uh, the larger scale of our lives. And I think, you know, you and I were talking about what has 
what I call pandemic plus, right? The the adventure that we've all been on for the last two years, you know, what has it brought up for a lot of people? And and I think for a lot of people, it's a re-examination of what am I doing with my life? Yes. And do I want to keep doing that? And did I realize how much I didn't like doing what I was doing or, you know, at this place or with these people or for this reason or whatever? And then what else is out there? And I think for a lot of people, this was probably their first real encounter with a possibility they may die on a timeline different than the one they imagined, which of course then brings up, you know, it has a tendency to bring up all the big questions. And I think you're absolutely right. And, and a lot of people, in my experience, don't really know where, where do I even start with this question uh, or to find out what's next. And helping people through that journey of figuring out what's next is one of the things I, I actually love doing most in this world. And I had a kidney transplant at the end of 2008. This was after 17 years of living with kidney disease. And um, as I was leaving the hospital, the doctor pushes into my palm a prescription for an antidepressant. And I look at it and I think, what do I need this for? <laughs> it's like, I, I, I didn't think I would live past 30, but here I was, um, you know, probably I think it was 38 or something like that. And um, I had never been healthier, right? I, ha- I had this new kidney. I had a completely new lease on life. And if it were like a lifetime channel special, the credits would roll and, and, you know, and kind I'd of be, be a happy bawling. ending. Right, exactly. <laughs> right, right. My mascara <laughs> would be down at my chin. Yes. And with organ transplant, the majority, the vast majority, 90% of rejection happens within the first three months. And so for the first three months, I was asking the question, okay, am I going to live? Am I going to live? Am I going to live? And then I hit the three month mark and and everything was okay, better than okay, actually. And then it was like, oh my God, I'm going to live, right? Wow. And that, and that lasted for about six months. And at the nine-month mark, it was like, oh my God, I'm going to live. And you know, as I said, I never thought I would live past 30. And so thinking about a future wasn't really part of what my internal makeup was. And at the nine-month mark, when I realized, oh, not only was I going to live, I was probably going to live a long time. I fell into this huge, profound depression. And then I suddenly remembered that piece of paper the doctor pushed into my palm. <laughs> they go dig it out. Where did I put it? They knew it was going to happen. And I thought, wow, I have never been healthier. I'm living a life that I couldn't imagine I was going to be able to live. And why am I suddenly not interested in living it? And so I started hunting around. I said, this is not normal, but I also don't think there's something quote unquote wrong with me. And, and then I kind of happened on this whole literature around transition and change. And it turns out when you go through big changes, a lot like the ones we have been through together, you know, as a, as a society globally, part of that transition is something which feels a lot like depression and anxiety. And, and it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you, right? That it's not pathological or, or um, that your serotonin level is off or whatever. It's that when, you're, when you encounter profound external changes, your body will naturally downshift into a kind of what I'll call low power mode 
to kind of force you to sit still and rethink, okay, what is relevant about what is in my head about what I think life is about? For me, it was all these stories about, um, you know, living with a chronic illness for, for two decades, basically. And what was still, what about that way of being in the world was still relevant? And, and I think about that period where like you're in this downshifted mode, your energy is very low, you feel anxious and depressed and worthless and hopeless and kind of un, unmoored and rudderless. And you kind of wonder, why am I here? That that is actually this huge opportunity to rethink, to, you know, metaphorically clean out the garage of like, what, what of all this stuff do I need to get rid of? What do I need to keep? What's important? And what, I, what needs to be in there now that isn't there? And, and I think that's where we're at. That's where we're at. And so you see a lot of people um, stepping away from, from an old world that may not be relevant or meaningful for them. It's so true. When we're hearing headlines like the great resignation, so many people are leaving the great awakening. So many people are getting clear that, you know, proverbial kick in the pants. You got a real kick in the pants at 20 years old. You got, you thought you had five years to live and here you and I are talking many decades, you know, two decades later. Right. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Maybe three. three? Actually, (laughs) I was going to say, we're probably the same age. Thank God, thank God I can still You're pass for 40. You're very welcome. Yes, I love these Zoom filters. They, they are so good for us, aren't they? That's great. Oh my God, that's awesome. And yes, you can. And yes, you can. You know, and I mean, we talked about it. We talked about it before we started recording that it's like, why for so many of us do we have to wait until we get, you know, I call it like the, you know, the universe smacks you with the two by four because we're not listening. We're not slowing down. We're not going inside. And what you're talking about is the shift. And this is what I loved when I first heard you talk about your work. It was the shift from the external game into the inner game. And that's so much a part. And I guess I'm really curious what led you. So you talked to a part of the story. So then pick up on the story and like talk about how you thought about, okay, how do I help others with this shift to internally? Now we're asking all of these big questions. Now what? Now what? Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, I I was, when I was 20, which is now 30 years ago, I was uh, finishing up my second year of college and well, to make a long story short, I was diagnosed with a, uh, an autoimmune disease that had no cure. It still has no cure. It was attacking my kidneys. And um, the doctor said there was a 90% chance of dying within five years. And so at 20 years old, like, I, I don't know if you were thinking about your mortality, but suddenly I wasn't. Hell no. I was probably like, <laughs> where's my next beer? Right. <laughs> and so suddenly, you know, my life just completely turned on a dime. And And at the same time, there was some part of me, I can remember leaving the hospital with my father and looking up at him and saying, gee, dad, I I guess, I guess 90% is good news, you know, because somebody's got to be in the 10% that lives, right? And, and I decided that was going to be me. And at the same time, I realized that at some level, it was kind of a spiritual challenge. Like what? Okay. The, just the metaphor, why is my body attacking me? Um, like that, that's gotta be, there's gotta be something more than just, you know, medical happenstance. And so that really set me off on a journey to understand what was going on. 
And you know, my my mother's Japanese. My great grandfather was a, a sumo wrestler, actually, and so I was, uh, and still am, you know, very fascinated by Japanese culture. And and so I went back to school, talked to my Japanese religions professor, and said, you know, this is what's going on for me. And and he says, you know, don't, don't worry. Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. And he reaches into his desk drawer and he pulls out this book called The Three Pillars of Zen by Philip Kaplow, which is the first book uh, in English to teach Westerners how to do Zen. And I like to say that, you know, it's for non-Japanese audiences, it's really important to know that in Japan, Zen didn't come from California and that it was the war here is religion, you know? And, and part of that, I think, is that those practices cultivated a kind of fearlessness in the face of mortality. And at 20 years old, that's what I needed. I mean, that book is a pretty heavy, serious book. And, and I remember sitting in my literal and proverbial attic apartment, reading this book and, and, and like doing these practices. And it gave me something to do with my mind, right? It gave me something to do with all the emotion I was experiencing, you know, the anger, the, the rage, the frustration, the anxiety, the fear of being 20 years old and thinking like, you know, could, in five years, it could all be done. The long and the short of it is I lived another 17 years after. My doctor didn't really understand what had happened, nor was he interested, interestingly. Um, but, you know, I saw it at the same time. So there was, there was this, you know, learning to work with what was going on inside. And at the same time, at that time, which was like the late 19... It was the early 1990s. Every time a PBS station needed to do a fundraiser, they would pull out this conversation with Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell on the power of myth. And Joseph Campbell talking about the hero's adventure, right? That you go on these adventures and that they challenge you. And that the adventure really isn't an external adventure, it's an internal adventure. And, it's, and the dragon or whatever that you're kind of facing is really something inside you. And I took that to heart. So when I thought this medical thing is really a heroic journey, I started to really read everything in my life through that lens. Like, am I going to look at this fear or am I going to run from it? Am I going to push into what I am not comfortable with or am I going to pretend it's not there and distract myself? And, and that was really, so I was really navigating this experience internally obviously something worked you know you're and and i started you know later i really realized oh this is about development we don't necessarily as a culture a acknowledge that the inner life exists b give you tools to manage it but but c understand that it's at some level really all about what's happening inside no matter what crazy, crummy, unjust, unfair situation you find yourself in. It's like what you've got at the end of the day is how do I use my mind in this circumstance? And fast forward a few years later, I, I received a grant to study people who were quote unquote successful professionals who were also long-term mindfulness practitioners. And that was in the late 1990s to find people who would publicly admit that they were a meditator um, was like, you know, cause at that time, let's just say nobody was knocking down the door. Right. And it was not the hip thing to talk about. And it was, it was exactly the not hip thing to talk about, you know, yeah. it'd be like declaring yourself a leper or something. And 
But we found these amazing people. Some were Fortune 100 CEOs, some were world famous architects, movie producers, you know, people who had really challenging lives at some level. And I would ask them, what do you think your life would be like if you didn't have this practice? And obviously, it's an impossible question to answer. But a third of them, without hesitation, said, oh, that's easy. I'd be dead. And, and I'm like listening to this thinking, oh, yeah, you'd be dead too. <laughs> and Literally, yeah. <laughs> literally, yeah, yeah. right. And, and I realized, oh, and, what the, and, and so what that meant was that these practices gave them something to do with their minds. You know, that their lives were so intense or they were being pulled in so many directions at once that if they didn't have something to really understand how to work with that, they would have killed themselves. Like either, either literally, right? Like one fellow showed me his medical record and say, you know, I was eating myself to death. I was uh, raging myself to death. My first wife left me. My second wife left me. Look, I got I to gotta hold on to number three because I like her, you know? And, and, and they would be people who physically did not look like they were angry or that they were under duress. In fact, it was almost always the opposite. There were people who were radiant, um, who had kindness in their eyes, who, uh, and you could see that something had happened to them, something good had happened to them. And, and so I realized that uh, everybody needs to know how to do this, right? Yeah. Like, like, I mean, this was the late 1990s. So it was before even mobile technology. And people's lives were crazy, right? Now you don't have to be a Fortune 100 CEO to have a crazy life. It's now available to everybody. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. We are in, you said this, and you've said this a couple of times. You probably said it in your TED talk and you definitely said it in your Wisdom 2.0 conversation that we are in a distraction economy, right? And and the, the preciousness is in where we choose to put our attention. In fact, I think you ended your TED talk or close to ended it by saying quality of attention is quality of life. And that really, really stuck with me because our attention is so splintered and so fragmented and pulled by all of these devices and all these voices and all of these demands. And if we let all of that external drive us, we're just, we're going to burn out is what's happening today. The burnout numbers are off the charts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, if we had to think about like, what are the basic skills every person needs to know? In the late 19th and early 20th century, it was like learning how to read, learning how to write, learning how to do arithmetic. In the 21st century, it means understanding how to control your attention mm-hmm. and, and, and what you focus on, right? And, and as you said, you know, what you, what you pay attention to, what you give your attention to, is what your life is. So if I put my attention to baseball statistics, right, and 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 uh, learning how to be a doctor, right, then I get that life. If I give my attention to architecture and cookbooks, which is what I do, right, I get that life. Oh my God, and, I love you even more. Architecture and cookbooks, <laughs> yes. All right, that's for another time. <laughs> it's another. It's another. We got like three more podcasts. I know we do. We do. Or just or just we'll we'll have to meet up sometime at Modern Elder Academy. <laughs> So, but we're never taught that. I I think about all the work I do is all the stuff you need to know about life that nobody ever teaches you in school. Yes. And so 
Number one is, you know, my son's now five, and I think about right, helping him understand how to control his attention and what he's putting his attention on and valuing that and understanding that there is an array of forces out there for good or for ill that are there trying to seduce your attention at every turn. And, and it is absolutely essential to know how to turn away from that. Right, how how your attention is being seduced, you know, like what is it like your own curiosity is being weaponized against you at some level, yeah. and so so you don't even feel like any good seduction. You don't even feel that it's happening to you. you it feels like you want to do it, right? Yeah. Why is it that Megan Fox doesn't get uh, uh, cast in movies anymore? Oh, okay, I'll click on that link, right? And it's like, no, 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 wait a minute. I actually don't care, and that's not important to me, right? Exactly. And so. Um, so like noticing when I have a whole article about this that I wrote for uh, basically for my students, but, but three things to look for. Uh, one thing I call lift off, like, okay, you're doing something important. And then suddenly your attention lifts off and goes to do something trivial. Right. And, and watching that and noticing that and saying, okay, is that actually what I want to be doing right now? The other one is rabbit hole, which is, let's say you're, um, We've all, we all know rabbit hole. Uh, it's you're, you want to buy a new car. You're thinking about buying a Volvo. Um, Volvos are made in Sweden. Vikings were from Sweden. I wonder, Sweden, uh, like, oh yeah, Swedish meatballs. Mom used to make those, but now I'm a vegan now. And like, what do I, I wonder if they're vegan Swedish meatball recipes. And now I start looking and then I wonder if the Vikings, what did the Vikings eat? No, Vi- were the Vikings vegan? And then like three hours later, you've kind of mapped the history of you know, Viking warfare in the North Atlantic, but you're nowhere closer to buying a new car right? That's rabbit hole. So, and then, um, then the other one is scrolling zombie, which is, you know, you just keep flicking until you get the next hit of, of joy juice, you know, cat video or whatever. And then you can be 20, 30 minutes into that. And was that something you wanted to do? Like, you know, I don't, I don't tell anybody how to live their life and I do all these things myself, but it's to help people become conscious of that's what's happening. And I think for me, the gift of being finding, of having this illness at 20 was the visceral awareness that my life, my life was finite. And that what, and that quite literally, like what I gave my attention to was really, really important. And, and I think the gift of mortality was that it took off, it gave me license to take off the table a whole bunch of stuff that, that was not important to me, you know, and, and what was I going to focus on? And, and that, that was, and I think that's where we're all at at some level, you know? Yeah. And then uh, something else I wanted to build off of what you said earlier, which I thought was really interesting. Like, why is it that crisis, like, why is it we need crisis to provoke these examinations? And I think that's why and talking about mindlessness is so important because you can just go basically on momentum through your day, not really questioning, oh, do I actually like this or not? And I think what, you know, the gift of crisis is to be able to use it in this developmental way, you know, rather than getting sucked down the whirlpool that it is also present in crisis. Because I think oftentimes, if I talk to people, they they will have a story that says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm in this, I'm on this path because X, Y, Z thing happened to me. And it, 
you know, in the moment, it was terrible. It was painful. It was miserable. You know, it was like a look, looking into a, some kind of vast darkness and not knowing what was going to be on the other side of it. But now that I'm on the other side of it, I realize, oh, it set up something that I couldn't have predicted or I probably wouldn't have done otherwise. And so for me, crisis is, um, it always, it always has the potential of having an amazing gift that, that is not there or not apparent in the beginning. And, and that's where I think we can use this pandemic situation to our advantage. Yeah, because not all of us got the diagnosis that you got at 20 or got the wake up call that I got at 45 or, you know, I'm sure, you know, a lot of our Rebel Souls community have had the kick in the pants or the, you know, the two by four whack to the solar plexus at some point. But for some of us, it's coming for the first time now, as you said. So I think the question is, so let's circle back to, okay, now what? Because I'm so curious how you talk about this in practical terms. You work with a lot of people and a lot of leaders. I mean, you are out there teaching in some of the best schools in this country, this art of mindlessness, should I call it? This This art of self-leadership, this art of self-management and this inner game, right? So for lack of a better word, I'm going to put it all under this umbrella. I love how you talk about it as, as the inner game. So what does that look like? You know, you talk about green zone, red zone, black zone, which I think would be really cool to get into and we could string all these things together. And do we have, do we understand as leaders what that means? And do we have the tools? And then do our cultures support keeping us in these flourishing zones, right? So I'd love for you to talk about all of that because I'm really intrigued and it feels like the moment is now for this for this shift on a really massive scale. Yeah, that's great. There's a lot there. Um, a lot of really interesting questions. One, you know, I, I teach at the Drucker School of Management and people probably know that Peter Drucker is considered to be the founding father of the discipline of management and, and really an incredibly wise figure. One of the things that he said that is coming up for me a lot now is that you need to treat, treat your employees as if they're volunteers, right? So how do you treat your employees as if they're volunteers? Like how do you create an environment where people want to be? And that obviously hasn't been, isn't true for a lot of places because a lot of people are resigning, right? And so how do you create a place people want to be? The other thing is what I think about what I do when you're working with the inner game, you know, which is the thoughts you have, the beliefs you have, the mindsets you have, the emotional reactions you have, and how all of those translate into action in the world and, and how do those actions turn into results. So all of my work is predicated on looking at a result. You look at the result. What is working? What is not working? Is that result something you actually wanted? And if it's not, then let's step back and look, how did we generate that? The other side of the inner game, if we think about individually, is what I call the, indi- the, indi- the invisible office. So there's the office that we see the computers, the desks, chairs, the phones, and all of that. And then there's the office we don't see, which is what do I think about my boss? What does my team think about me? When I see so-and-so's name on caller ID, what happens inside me? 
Do I get angry? Do I get frustrated? Do I feel a sense of dread? And if I feel that sense of dread as I'm picking up the phone to say hello, is that coming across in my voice? Right. So understanding, seeing in this very clear way, like what is happening inside you and how that is translating into the action you're taking and into the relationships you have with one another. So, so true. That emotional energy. I just want to pause on that for a minute because like that consciousness of each leader and that emotional energy that each of us is carrying into all aspects of our lives needs to be talked about. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's beautiful. I, there's um, a question I often ask people is, you know, what is the energy you are bringing to a situation? Right? Are you... Are you angry as you walk through the door or you think, oh, this pain in the neck guy I have to deal with, right? Is that is what is that is that is what is informing your action in the next moment? Like what's the energy? Who are you being right now? You know, are you being an asshole? Okay, so if that's the case, then that's gonna reflect back. Right. And then and then the result doesn't change or the result gets worse. That's one thing. And then in talking about leaders. I think we're starting to get a little bit more sophisticated about this. But I, one of the observations I've had o- over the years is that the organization experiences the consciousness of the leader, right? Uh, or as my friend more succinctly puts it, the fish rots from the head. <laughs> <laughs> so the organization experiences the consciousness of the leader. And we also know is that the leader's emotions are the most contagious within it, within any given hierarchy. So as the world changes, right, we're going through these enormous wrenching changes. The capacity of the leader to understand what is going on inside him or herself. And first to be just simply aware of that. And then to see that whatever, what I call, whatever those assumptions, those beliefs, those reactions, those unhealed traumas are, how that translates into how that person sees the world, takes action in the world, and gets results in that world. There is a one-to-one correlation. with That That is absolutely, unmistakably true. I have found over and over and over and over again. And that the blind spot of the leader becomes the blind spot of the organization. And what the leader, then, you know, we can have an adult conversation about at some level, I wouldn't really talk about this in the first conversation, but at some point in the conversation with, with a really sophisticated leader, they'll come to the realization it is something about them inside that needs healing. And that what they don't heal everyone else will have to deal with, right? Like the pain that they are not dealing with inside themselves will get externalized somewhere, somehow, and that the people around them will have to deal with it. That's really profound. What they don't heal, everyone else will feel. That's, that's great. I'm going to write that down. That's re- please. <laughs> that sounds like a good chapter title, right? <laughs> right, right. Put that, yeah. put that in your book. That's a, if you ever need language, I'm a language girl. Come to me. <laughs> so <laughs> no, noted. I got it. It's so profound. Like that's so true. I always say, right, this isn't my language, but hurt people hurt people. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the same thing that we're talking about. We're carrying that forward. And that's what creates this toxicity. Absolutely. In many cases. Right. Yeah. 
absolutely, unmistakably. Mm. And so I think, you know, a lot of people have talked about the last two years that the, you know, the equation of what good leadership is has changing. And I think one of those, one of those terms that have changed is that, you know, you, you really, you leader really need to heal whatever is going on inside yourself. Because if you're going to be put in a highly pressurized situation, wherever there are loose seams in your psyche, that's what's going to blow first. And, and I think that at some level, it's, it's really about being a mature human being, right? And it's like mature human beings don't run from their pain. They face it. And, and the good news about being alive in the 21st century is there are, there are really effective ways to heal oneself. And, and it's essential, you know, I I think, because let's face it, it, things aren't probably not going to get easier. And, and I think that one of the job requirements of really being a, a, an excellent leader is to have your inner game kind of in, in good shape, you know, that you have to be, you have to be, you, you talked about the red zone, green zone, black zone. Let me say what, what that means. Like, it's a, it's a kind of map of how your nervous system works. The green zone is, well, the red zone, let's start there. You know, it's where you move into a state of kind of defense or attack. And, you know, there's a lot of energy in the system. You know, I think about it like the pot's boiling over. And it's a place where we experience a lot of frustration or we may be angry or frustrate, uh, uh, anxious, um, you know, it's two o'clock in the morning and, and the hamster wheel's still spinning. You know, you're, it's a place of heightened energy and it's usually defensive or offensive and it can create a lot of destruction if unmanaged. You know, I think about, I ask, oftentimes ask leaders, think about something you've recently done or said that you know, that you now regret. And if you could rewind time and replay it, you would. And what zone were you in when you did that? Almost always they were in the red zone. You know, they were frustrated or angry or anxious or fearful. So that's one side. On the bottom is the black zone, right? Which is not too much energy. It's not enough energy. I don't want to get out of bed. I feel depressed. I feel lonely or disconnected. I don't, I don't want to see people. It's lethargy. It's checking out. It's intense sadness. Both of these things, is it by the burnout? way, is, yeah, is the burnout, black zone like right? where it's just Absolutely. like I'm done. I got done. nothing yeah. left to give. Okay, I'm a frizzled crisp of, uh, yeah. of yeah. And so neither one of those places is inherently bad. Sometimes you need to go on the offense, right? Because somebody's attacking you, and you need to you need to escape the room, or you need, or somebody dies, and we go into the black zone as a period of mourning, right? Uh, but ideally where we want to be is the green zone in the middle, which is not necessarily being calm and calm. It's more collected. You know, I'm in control of myself. I can see a wider point of view of a sense of humor. I am adaptive. I can uh, plan things, you know? Uh, And that's where I think a good leader going forward, a good leader has to know how to get themselves into their green zone, how to make their green zone wider so they leave it less. And then once they've got that down, how do you help your team be in the green zone? Because oftentimes, if the leader's in the red zone, the team's going to be in the red zone. And the organization will soon, will, will either start, will eventually start to burn out. So what I've seen 
is that an effective leader understands and builds a support structure in their lives to keep themselves in their green zone. People who are successful in a sustainable way, right? They have a life that you would want. They have also created a very robust support system for themselves. So what does that mean? Maybe it means they have a standing, they have a standing relationship with a coach. Maybe it means they have scheduled, non-negotiable white space in their calendar. Maybe it means they have a physical routine. Maybe that means they have a meditation practice, right? Maybe it means there's somebody in their lives that is not their spouse that is taking care of them, right? That is a resource for them, that they have somebody to talk to outside of the pressures of the organization and, and the family, frankly. So. Um, you know, I, I think that's essential. It's usually more than one person. It's a coach, it's a trainer, it's a therapist, it's, it's a, a sports team you belong to. That is not a sign of weakness. That is a sign of somebody who understands how to be strong over the long run. Amen to that. In my language and the community knows this, I say we need, more of us need to shift from being success empty to success full. That's really and, that's an, and that's an inside <laughs> job, right? Because that means it's all about fulfillment. It is the life that you want to live. It's not the, you know, exterior veneer that's about to just, you know, fall apart at any minute. And it is grounded in those things, right? It's grounded in taking a break in me time and having that community support in getting sleep. I remember you talked about like being well-rested is part of that foundation, right? It used to yeah. be like, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I'm like, that's <laughs> bullshit. It's total <laughs> bullshit. For me, like my primary strategic priority is getting a good night's sleep. Everything revolves around that. In fact, right now, like the thing I'm experimenting with to great success is that I've turned off all the color on my screens. And so you know, we all, we've all heard that blue light, you know, blue light and morning light are, are similar. And then of course, all your screens are emitting this blue light. And, and I think it's screwing up people's sleep cycles. So I thought, well, I'm going to try something because I'm certainly not giving up my caffeine. Right. But right. I'll, uh, God forbid, <laughs> God forbid. And, um, so I turned off all the, all the color on the screen. So all my screens are black and white and I have to say it is working. <laughs> it's working. It's great. So I have a question for you. I mean, when we think about, I love these ideas for how we think about the, our, this for ourselves yeah. as leaders. And then I get really curious when we start to talk about how do we create support structures within companies to help keep leaders, all of us, in the green zone? you know, to help us flourish because it feels like, yeah, there's a lot we can do, but the pushback I get all the time. And I know this from having been in the corporate world is, well, that's great. I can, you know, try to do like, here's a great example. I would try to create white space. I mean, this is a C-suite executive in, you know, a fortune 500 company, create white space in my calendar. And inevitably somebody above me would still tell me that, nope, you know what? You got to be here doing this thing, whatever. And I realized that some of my boundaries were eroding and that was big work for me to do that I didn't do back in those days that I understand now because of the work I've done. But 
I mean, I'm, I'm curious, how are the leaders you work with going back into their organizations and trying to implement more of this, you know, for their teams and on more of a broad scale, cultural systemic basis? Yeah. And that, which is now, I think the next big question, because, mm. you know, I, going through college, I, I worked in a factory, a metal plating factory. And I would check in like at five o'clock in the morning and, and I'd check out later that eight hours later. And I had to electroplate door hinges. And so I poured these big door barrel of door hinges on a table. And then I stuck those door hinges on a big hanger and I stuck that hanger on a big machine that would then dip them into noxious chemicals. And then after lunch, I'd take them all off and stack them up nice and nice and neat. In that eight hours, I knew exactly what my job was. I could focus on it. No one interrupted me. And at the end of the day, I could tell exactly how well I did or did not do. And that whatever, 3.30 or whenever it was, I clocked out. 3.31, I wasn't thinking about door hinges unless I was having post-traumatic dreams about them chasing me, right? Is any of that true in a knowledge work environment? Right? Absolutely Can, not. Right? People often don't know what their job is, how they're measured, um, who their boss is in a matrix organization. Uh, can they and actually focus on the job? And, it yeah. does, and you don't leave it, right? And even yeah. if you leave it physically, it follows you home. Now it's only at home, right? So one of the big challenges, I don't know what the right word is, the kind of oops moment of the modern workplace and the non and the kind of non-industrial workplace is that we took all the boundaries away. You know, we took the wall away, right? Now you get us to get a cubicle. Now we don't even get a cubicle, right? We're all smashed together in one place, you know, at least pre-pandemic, which I, I think is quite frankly a disaster. Because we don't, going back to the original exploration around attention, we don't realize that Quality of attention, as you said, quality of attention and quality of life is inter in intimately interlinked, but quality of attention and quality of result is intimately interlinked. So if you've got a workplace where nobody can concentrate, right? Good luck. That's why work from home for so many people is so wonderful, right? Because I can actually focus on my job. So in some cases, if I'm not homeschooling my kids, right? Yes, right. We, yeah. we definitely yeah, have. we do have a five-year-old at home too. So let me just put that caveat yeah, out. Right, right. Right. In some cases. So what can a leader do? I think that, well, one, the reason I like the framing of red zone, green zone, black zone is that it gives a nice non-therapeutic sounding way to talk about the inner life. And I find that a lot of my students and clients just start to instantly adopt it. Like, like what zone are we in? So how do we start to talk about what's going on in the inner game? Oh, I love that we normalize right. it and how we talk about it in, the, in our work teams and our in work, our work world. Teams. Yep. Yeah. And so that's one. The other is, what are the subtle or unsubtle messages you send about like working after hours or whatnot. I mean, I think we're kind of well, well on our way about this conversation that, okay, the email you, you boss send at 8.30 is telling everybody, hey, I'm working, you should be working too. Uh, one really effective leader I know is now a retired brigadier general. She, she realized uh, that whenever she sent a message to her team 
that they would, you know, being a hierarchy driven place like the army had would instantly stop what they were doing to respond to her. And, and she said, I, I realize that's kind of interrupting your flow. And so let's just have this under, un, this unspoken understanding that unless I say so, you have to the end of the next business day to get back to me. Right. So they build in conscious expectation about response and, and time. I, I think those are the kind of conversations we need to have. I mean, it's way overdue. I think the the notion that if the leader is on his or her phone in the meeting, that that's not a meeting. You know, how do you how do you make meetings meaningful? have a clear agenda and a purpose for the meeting and what's the result we want to get out of the meeting, right? That takes some of the mindlessness out of it. Who needs to prep for what and what are the decisions we need to make? It's just basic standard, good management practice, but then also the expectation. And I think this is probably becoming more widely adopted is that, you know, you don't have other, you don't bring your device into the meeting to, because that, that, you know, fractures your attention. And you can't make good decisions. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm as easily seduced by that by anybody, and so uh, or as anybody. And so, you know, but understanding again, this what you pointed out, right? Quality of attention and quality of life and quality of result is intimately interlinked, and you can't be doing two meetings simultaneously, right? So we need to be more literate about that. And I think that a company-wide white space. It's probably not a bad idea. You know, like the four-day work week, I, I implemented that in my own life, but with one caveat that the, that the day off is, I have white space on Wednesday. And so Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. And that, and that Wednesday, you know, because I have the, the luxury of structuring my life that way, you know, Wednesday is totally open for me to concentrate on stuff, write stuff, get back to people you know, do things in a way that um, I'm not going to be pulled in 500 directions at once, yeah. right? That I can't when meetings are stacked back to back, which I think is what. Yeah. And I would encourage everybody listening to say, okay, if I can't do it for an entire day, how can you start the conversation around a morning or an afternoon or a couple of hours and say, this is, I always talk about it in terms of meetings, like M-E-tings, like these, <laughs> this is your time, right? Yeah. To do with what you need. And sometimes that might be meditate, slow down, go for a walk, put your feet in nature. Sometimes it's responding to emails. Sometimes it's writing, whatever it is, what do I need in this moment? And making sure we're creating that white space yeah. to be able to do it. That just, it feels like it's been missing for a very long time. So start a small conversation around white space with your team in your organization, whatever that looks like, even if it's not a full day, because we've got to start somewhere. Yeah. You know, we're, we're basically an additive culture, right? We just do more. And what happens when we start to experiment with taking things away and, yeah. and having, yeah, having white space on a calendar? I, I don't think there's also, you know, this is where this kind of subtleties of the inner game and where, you know, when I'm working, working with a group, just noticing their own mind's reactivity and how that reactivity is amplifying 
whatever stress state they're already in. And you know, I'm working actually, I'm working with a group right now that that lives in a very highly pressurized kind of work environment. And that part of part of the challenge is helping them realize that because they haven't communicated expectation very clearly to one another or to their client, that they're all operating on this set of totally impossible assumptions, (laughs) which is collectively driving them all nuts. Like, I have to respond right away. I can't make mistakes. I can't push back on the client demand, you know, and that all of these assumptions are backing unintentionally backing the entire group into this very powerless place. And when we started to like unpack to say, no, you actually have, you don't actually need to respond to this immediately. No, the client actually has more degrees of freedom for you to work with than the kind of almost like fascistic story they tell themselves about what's going to happen to them if they don't respond right away, right? And, And so to start to see there is an aspect of this that we do to ourselves and you don't have to do that. And so that's been an interesting element of helping to start to change a culture, to realize we externalize the scripts, take a look at the script and say, no, this is not actually what your boss wants for you or intends for you. Right? Your boss actually cares a great deal about you. We don't want you to do this, right? We want you to do something else. And, and, and it usually means having more agency in your work, like voicing what your needs are, you know, negotiating response as opposed to feeling like you are uh, a victim to it. People have more freedom than they realize, which is an interesting thing that I've kind of come to discover. Oh, there's so much truth in that. And I love what you called out saying, let's have open conversations about the assumptions being made and therefore the agreements we can make going forward, right? Let's unpack and uncover that stuff because that's another, it strikes me that that's another part of the invisible office, that there are all these kind of lingering sort of expectations that everybody's not talking about that are driving so much of this and having awareness around those and conversation around those feels like it can help you reclaim some of that agency. Absolutely. It's yeah. absolutely, I have found that to be, I mean, it's obviously not 100% true and it's not a magic silver bullet because there are really dysfunctional workplaces and bad totally. bosses and, you know, psychopaths that you work for, <laughs> but it's not always true. And there, yeah. and there are always degrees of freedom within yourself that you can work with. I mean, that, yeah. that's what illness taught me. I love that. And getting curious, right? So many of us getting more curious about what zone am I in? What's happening to me? Why am I going down the rabbit hole? Why do I find myself in stratospheric liftoff? You know, using all those phenomenal terms that you're teaching us, catching ourselves in that and investigating and understanding where that's taking us because that's impacting the quality of our life and the quality of our leadership. And that is powerful. Where can people go? Where can the Rebel Souls community go to learn more about your work? Or can (laughs) they partake in one of your classes? Or I know you've got your podcast. Yeah, my podcast, Untaught Essentials, which you kindly mentioned earlier. I I teach at the Drucker School of Management. So if you're interested in coming to get an executive MBA or a flex MBA, that's that's always a possibility. We also have a new leadership, advanced uh, leadership 
MA, which is designed for kind of a mid-career person that's looking to kind of retool their life. I lead the Mindfulness for Executive Leadership Certificate at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Those are all online classes. So we've had people from Poland. <laughs> we had people from Poland, Tennessee, uh, uh, Washington um, join. So you don't have to be in Ohio to do that. And then Lily Powell and I teach at the Darden School Executive Education, a course on leading mindfully through crisis. And the next one will be next April. I love that. And where can we find you or follow you? Are you on the socials? I know you have a website. We'll make sure to link to as well. Yeah, it's uh, jeremyhunter.net. It's 10 years old. It's up for renewal. (laughs) It's one of the things I'm doing right now. (laughs) Uh, But uh, yeah, feel free to link link in with me. I'm happy to hear from folks. Uh, Let's see, what else? SoundCloud. I have a SoundCloud account with uh, some uh, guided meditations and things. That's... I think the very uncreative uh, Jeremy Hunter one two three. If you search for that in SoundCloud, that, <laughs> that should be that should keep busy, keep people busy for a while. I'll also post a link uh, of an article that I wrote on how do you navigate transition. I wrote for Ooh, Mindful Magazine. I love Magazine. that. If you can send that to me, I'll put it in the show notes. Sure, yeah, happy to do that. Yeah. I would love that. I mean, I just think it's fun. You've given us, and you mentioned, so the article that had the three things, lift off, rabbit hole, and the, the zombie scrolling, scrolling zombie, yeah. Can you send us the link for that sure. as well? So we'll, yeah, we'll share both of those articles. I think that's really powerful. And we have, I mean, there are a lot of people who, you know, are similar to me, right? They're either executives or executives have left. They're running their own companies now in this community who I'm sure would want to be sharing those with their teams and, yeah. and thinking through this next phase of, of leadership. And I'm really grateful that you spent You know what? I forgot. Yeah. I forgot no, one. It's the inner MBA program. What do I think? Oh, the, yes. Oh, the, please uh, talk about that because I'm fascinated with this. Yeah. So that's... Uh, it's a collaboration between LinkedIn, Sounds True, I think NYU and Wisdom 2.0, which you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. And, you know, it's all about, it's a, a nine month long, mostly online journey with an incredible array of people. I'm one of the three lead faculty uh, that, that is all about managing and transforming the game. And yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a quite an engaging, it's a, the program I wish I would have had. 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's but, exactly uh, how are, I right? feel. Yeah. I'm a big, I'm completely in that community as well. And for anybody listening, if you haven't heard of inner MBA, we will absolutely, we'll, we'll publish a link to that as well, because it is a phenomenal program. And I mean, you get the likes of Jeremy Hunter and Scott shoot, who's been on the podcast and so many other incredible, um, teachers and humans and souls. Um, teaching this work and helping us all out. I I love it. I love the work that you do, who you be. This was our first time meeting and talking and I'm entirely sure it won't be our last. And I'm grateful. Thanks for coming and sharing, you know, your journey and your wisdom. And we all need a little bit more of it. (laughs) Well, it was a real pleasure, Shelly. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And to the community, you guys, thank you for dropping in. Until next week, stay bold brave and badass. Ciao. Hey, Rebel. Thanks for listening. If you were inspired by what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review so our fellow Rebel souls can find us. We have big work to do together. 
And if you want to dive deeper, head on over to my website at sylbatical.com and follow me at sylbatical on Instagram. Until next time, stay bold, brave, and badass, and never stop asking, what am I rebelling for?